Good morning, everybody. One of my favorite things when I was growing up and in school was uh, to go out to recess and play dodgeball. Any of you play dodgeball growing up? Back in, yeah, back in the day. Like, I wasn't even sure nowadays did kids even get recess because, you know, I step and all. But uh, they told me at the 930 service that they still get a recess, but that they can't play dodgeball. At least some of the schools, they can't play dodgeball out on the playground, but they can offer it in the gym. And I have to admit I was a little disappointed by that because some of my favorite memories are out on the playground, going outside for recess and playing dodgeball or certain sports like that. But... In spite of loving all those sorts of games, you had to get through what was, for many, one of the most excruciating moments of childhood. You know what that is? Everybody knows it. Picking teams. This is the moment where somehow the two biggest hooligans were always the team captains, and the rest of us had to line up with these two yahoos picking their team. And there's a nervousness that kind of struck the heart of everyone in the process because you didn't know when it was that you were going to get picked. So they begin. The first captain chooses the first person, and in that moment, that first person chosen is instantly relieved. They have a feeling of a little prideful, a little half-human, half-godlike. And all the other kids are jealous. Now, the second kid, when he gets picked, he's still feeling pretty good himself because he just assumes the first kid was probably best friends with that team captain, and that's why he got chosen. So there's still a little bit of pride swelling. But then the choosing continues, and the line gets shorter, and the unchosen remain, sweating, nervously hoping that their name gets called next, maybe flexing a little harder to show some athletic prowess because no one wants to be the last kid picked. And then, inevitably, it comes down to the last two. And the next to last is chosen. And while they didn't want to wait that long, at least they weren't that guy, the last kid to be picked. And in some ways, it feels like you weren't even chosen. The last team to pick got stuck with you because you were the last kid. Has anyone ever been there? Anyone ever felt that? Just bring it back and initiate the need for more therapy. If you need recommendations after the service, I'd be more than happy to give them to you. But here's what I'd say. Don't feel too sorry for that kid because I'm telling you, today they're now the CEO of a Fortune 500 company and they made $12 million just in bonuses last year. And that team captain, that hooligan, his vehicle was repossessed this past weekend. So everything shakes out in the end. Everyone likes the feeling of being chosen. And maybe sports on the playground wasn't your thing, but you'll understand the nervousness maybe in some other context. For example, uh, I was in the orchestra uh, growing up. I started in the fourth grade here at Monroe School. I played the violin, and I played the violin all the way through my senior year of high school, played a little bit of fiddle. I was in the South Bend Youth Symphony as well. And in the orchestra, you have different parts. So you had the first violinists, then the second violins, and then you had the violas, you had the cellos. Behind them were the bass. And the most important chair that you could get, and that's besides just having the sections, you had chairs. And the best position was to be the first chair, first violinist of the orchestra. You sat closest to the conductor and front and center of the audience. You were the one that everybody else tuned their instrument to the A on your instrument. If the conductor were to get shot by an audience member, as it could happen, you were the one that was to take the baton and step in to conduct because the show must go on. And at the end of the concert, it was customary for the conductor to shake the hand of the first chair first violinist. I was never 
the first chair, first violinist. You know why? This guy, Kenny Little, sitting on, a on that car is his name. He was always the first chair, first violinist. He was a much better violinist than me, and he was my friend, and I concede he could play. He was first chair, I was always second chair. He now works in Hollywood as a camera technician working with TVs and movies and those sorts of things, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Mrs. Fisher was our orchestra teacher. She was my orchestra teacher from the fourth grade here at Monroe all the way till I graduated from Riley High School. And she would have times in the year where you could, what she called, challenge for a chair. And the way that worked was you would, in front of the entire orchestra, declare your intent to challenge so-and-so for their chair. And then you would play a piece in front of the entire orchestra, and they would play a piece in front of the entire orchestra. And if you were better, at least that day, you got to move into their chair. And I remember one day a kid declared their intent to challenge another kid, and immediately the kid started to hyperventilate and... Like, the whole class started to freak out because we'd never seen anybody hyperventilate, and we just thought, oh my goodness, he's about to die. <laughs> and they got a paper bag, and he, he survived. But it was stunning to all of us. Because it's a vulnerable thing to perform in front of everyone like that and then have it critiqued or judged and then used as a determining factor where it is where you were going to sit or where your role was or what you were chosen for. And I can think of many other illustrations that maybe you have walked through. Maybe you had to audition for a part in the play, and you waited nervously as the director put together their assignments and who was going to play what part, because you knew, even though you wanted that star role, somebody had to play tree number three in the back. Or maybe you went out for a sports team, and there were 75 kids that went out for the team, and they only had a spot for 60, which means 15 are going to get cut. Or maybe it was just a promotion at work, or maybe just elections to be in the, the, an officer in the PTO. We love the feeling of being picked, or being chosen, or getting first chair, or getting the part. And we all have our feelings and emotions and at times self-worth even involved in it. No one wants to get picked last, or get cut from the team, or be denied the promotion. And all of us in this room have probably felt that at one time or another. So just by way of reminder, we began this series in the very first week by talking about the very first call in our conversion to Jesus is to die to oneself. Jesus said it like this in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. And this is the great paradox of our faith. The path to abundant life, the path to eternal life, a qualitatively different kind of life that begins now and lasts forever is via our own death, death to self. And it has hundreds of real and practical and daily decisions and consequences. And then last week, we talked about the reality that our society has given to us, whether we want it or not, whether we like it or not, the identity of being a consumer. And so every day you've got billboards and ads and marketing and TV spots and commercials all giving us the identity is you are a consumer. And the primary questions you have as a, as a consumer is, what do I want? What do I need? And what do I prefer? And that very easily bleeds into our spiritual life, and we begin to treat Christianity and the church as a place where spiritual goods and services are to be consumed. And this, by definition, is the exact opposite of dying to oneself. You cannot die to yourself and lead your life with this question, what do I want? What do I need? And what do I prefer? And then we also went on last week to talk about 
Paul's use of different metaphors, predominantly that being the church is like a human body, like Jesus' body, in fact, and we each have a part. We each have a role. And then I shared a couple other metaphors last week, things like uh, the difference between a caravan versus a commissary. We talked about like a caravan is, yeah, that's a group of people who are starting here and they're on a journey to get here. And everybody in the caravan has to do something. No one's allowed to just be a consumer and take from everybody else. Somebody's got to be the cook. Somebody's going to be the scout. Somebody's going to be the tailor. Everybody has a part. And the way we're going to get from here to there is everybody pulling their weight and everyone working together. A commissary is a totally different thing. It's sort of like a Walmart. You walk in, they got paid professionals. All you have to do is walk in and consume. Put in your cart whatever you want and just you pay for it and then you walk out. The church should be far more like a caravan than a commissary. And we talk about the difference in the metaphor between an army and an audience. And you immediately know the difference, right? An army has a purpose handed down to them by their commander-in-chief. They train, each of them having their own part and role in this mission. They look out for one another and make sure that no one is left behind. And they have a clear set idea of this is the win. This is what it means to be victory set for us by our commander-in-chief. An audience, on the other hand, is a group of strangers. You might share together an experience for two hours, but when it's all over, what do you do? You get in your car, you don't talk to anybody, and you critique what you just experienced all the way home. The church was never intended to be an audience, always more like an army. And so we ended last week by ultimately asking this question, are you a consumer or a producer? What are you contributing to the kingdom of God, and what is your role? And all that leads us to ask, so then I'm on God's team? Like, how do I get on God's team? And immediately, we can revert to our struggle of playing dodgeball on the playground and wondering exactly, how do you get picked or chosen for God's team? And who wants to feel the stress of that or the addition or the job promotion? How do I get on God's team? Let me remind you of a very important passage to us. It's in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in 4. It says this, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but what? Chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And it'll go on to say in verse 9, but you are, what's this, a chosen royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Or listen to the words of the Apostle Paul for a moment when he writes a letter to the Ephesians. It's rich and it's dense. There's a lot of here that we can unpack for weeks But I just want these words to wash over you for just a moment. Listen to how he says this in chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now look at this in verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Isn't that amazing? Just Just about it for just a moment. And you thought, oh, God chose me in 2007, maybe 2014, when I was in high school. But Paul says, oh, no, listen, before the earth was even created, God chose you. He had you in mind. Be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship 
through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given, to, given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth and under Christ. In him, this is, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Listen to this. When it comes to you being on God's team, there is no tryout. There is no audition. There is no performance you have to undertake and wait and see if God gives you a thumbs up or a thumbs down. You don't ever have to hyperventilate at the prospect that someone is trying to take your position in your chair with God. You cannot be cut from his team because God chooses you from heaven, born out of his great love for you. He chooses you. And I'm not interested in a huge theological debate on Calvinism versus Arminianism. And if you don't even know what those terms mean, great, we're just moving on. I just want you to know this. God initiates it. God is the one who offers the invitation. God is the one who begins the process. God is the one who enables by his grace that's in ways that are still mysterious to me, the drawing of ourselves to him. God chooses, and he chooses you. And do you know why? Because he is crazy in love with you. And some of you feel like you've never been chosen for anything, that you've always been just not good enough. Maybe you grew up with a perfectionist as a father or maybe you ended up in relationships that always made you feel inferior, just not good enough. Maybe you feel like you've never measured up, but I, I have good news for you. The kingdom of God is for you. You have been chosen. This is what we call gospel. That's why we call it good news. See, this is not, it is not good news to say, well, if you're good enough and you're holy enough and you're righteous enough, then the kingdom of God can be yours because none of us feel that. Not Pharisees do, but like most of us don't feel like we're good enough, righteous enough, holy enough to get the kingdom of God. It is not good news for God to say to us, listen, if you work real hard, and if, you, if you're really pious, like if you could just stop cussing just a little bit more than you do now, and if you could just kind of get that temper under control, maybe curb your drinking, just cut it to the weekends, then God will love you and accept you on his team. That's not good news to us. We're like, like I, don't, I'm not, I can't cut it. Like, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not in. I'm not on this team. So Paul has to remind us in Romans 5, verse 8. No, no, listen, God demonstrated his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But I do need to say this. You still get to decide. God will not force you on his team. He's sort of a gentleman like this. He will not coerce or manipulate or mandate that you have to be on his team. You don't, you don't want to be on team Jesus. You don't have to. But you definitely are being invited. And you should watch in the Gospels as Jesus goes and chooses his disciples. They were more than free to say no when Jesus told them to follow him and make, him fish, make them fishers of men. I mean, they could have said to Jesus, 
Jesus, thanks for the invitation. We're really not interested, or we can't, we got a lot of work to do, or I'd like to, but my family still needs me here fishing, and I've got responsibilities. They could have just said, you know what, Jesus, I appreciate the invitation. I just don't even feel spiritual enough. I don't know enough Bible verses to follow you. Thank you, though. But they didn't. They left immediately everything, and they followed Jesus. And let me suggest that the reason why was not because they were insecure about what would happen to them when they died. I, I don't think Peter, Andrew, James, and John ever thought to themselves when Jesus said, leave everything and come follow me, they thought, hmm, if we do this, when we die, we might get to go to heaven. Like I just, That's just not in their thought. They're not thinking, we, we need an escape plan for death when that happens. How do we get to heaven? What happens is they're watching Jesus' life and ministry. They're listening to Jesus' teachings, and Jesus is providing a radical prophetic revolution of what the earth is supposed to look like when God gets his way. And the word Jesus uses for that is the kingdom of God. And when they hear that, they're captivated by it, and they leave everything to follow that vision of what the earth is supposed to look like when God gets his way, when God shows up, when God is in the room, and everything happens like it's supposed to. And just by the way, as a side note, that's what living stones is actually referring to. Like in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter is addressing Jewish Christians who are in the diaspora, meaning they've been scattered outside of Jerusalem. And when he refers to Jesus as being the living stone, they don't think to themselves, oh, big rocks. What comes to their mind is the, living, the large stones of the temple. And in Old Testament theology, if you wanted to find God, you know where you found God at? The temple. And what Peter is saying is, listen, if you want to find God, you can find him in Jesus the living stone. And it's the only place in the Bible where the same metaphor for Jesus is also used for the church. And then he turns to the church and says, and by the way, you too are living stones. That if someone were trying to find God, they should be able to find him among us. That this is the place where the kingdom of God should break out and what God wants to happen, happens. Here on earth, God gets his way. And sometimes we need a reminder that this is what it's all about. When you accept the invitation to be on God's team, to say yes to being chosen, it's to accept then his vision of how things are on the earth supposed to be and going to be. And the reason why this always begins with repentance is because our own kingdom gets in the way. Like the biggest threat to the kingdom of God in my life is simply the kingdom of Sam, what Sam wants, what Sam desires, what Sam prefers. And the act of repentance is saying, I'm going to lay down the kingdom of Sam and I'm going to live for the kingdom of God. It's a surrender. And that's why anytime Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, it always begins with repentance. I don't know if you remember, but in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, this is how Jesus begins his ministry. He says, for the, from, from that time on, Jesus began to preach this. And notice the order. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. It always begins with repentance. And when you ask from what, it's simply this. A vision of what the world should be, according to Sam. It's irrelevant. Because most likely, I'll place myself at the center of it. Repentance is laying it down and dying to ourselves, denying ourselves the primary question, what do I want, what do I need, or what do I prefer? Repentance calls us to surrender and give ourselves to Jesus' vision. And sometimes to do that, it requires a lot of trust and a lot of faith. And Jesus knows this. If you're going to follow after him in his kingdom, sometimes it will take a radical trust that what Jesus is calling us to do and be is truly the path to abundant life. It's sort of like uh, on a sports team. Sometimes the players are called to do things on the field, even though they don't understand it, and just trust the coach, to trust the coach's decisions. Now, I do this all the time with the Cubs. Like, when I watch the Cubs, like, I just think to myself, why would they do that? And then the next thought, well, it's Joe Madden. If Joe Madden says this is what should happen, 
this is what should happen because he's a, he, right, he's a winning coach. The third baseman needs to concern himself with third base. If the ball comes to him, where he's going to throw it? If the ball is hit there, what position will he take? He needs to be the best third baseman there is. The pitcher, on the other hand, he just needs to concentrate on receiving the pitch from the catcher and then throwing the best pitch he can, followed by moving to where he needs to get on the field given any possibility. But the coach needs to see the big picture. He needs to know the moving parts. He needs to know how it all fits together and how what happens on second base now impacts the possibilities three plays down the road. But today's the last season for the Cubs to play the Reds, and they're going to postseason play the Nationals. Pray for them as Jesus' favorite team as they move on to the World Series again. Same thing with a conductor at an orchestra, right? They have to know how it all comes, to, how all the parts come together. If you're the cellist, you get your part down. You know your notes. You catch your tempo. But the conductor needs to know how that cello matches with the bass and how the second violins come in and how come in the violas. And now that first chair, first violin is Kenny Little. <laughs> and sometimes that's how it is with Jesus. It takes a radical trust and faith right after our repentance to trust that when he calls us to do something, it really will be towards our own abundant life and the kingdom of God. And it's this repentance and trust that are the signs that we have accepted Jesus' invitation to be on his team. He chose us. And we said yes. Because we believed in his vision here on the earth. And it's interesting to me, when the disciples asked, remember that, the story in the gospel where they go to Jesus and say, would you teach us to pray? Like they probably heard Jesus' prayer life and thought, we'd like to pray like that. That, that seems incredible. Would you teach us to pray? You remember what he said, right? Like, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven... I'll be their name. And you remember what he says next? It's in chapter 6, verse 10. Your kingdom come. Right? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth just like it is in heaven. This is not a when I die and get to heaven prayer. This is an October 1st, can you believe it's October 1st, October 1st, 2017, right here in South Bend, Indiana kind of prayer. What we are essentially saying is whatever things are like in heaven... We want that here on earth. So let me give it to you ethereally first, kind of in the abstract. Whatever love looks like in heaven, just picture in your mind what love must look like, feel like, how it must manifest in the very presence of God. However love looks like in heaven, that's what we want here on earth. Whatever joy looks like in heaven, what joy must feel like in heaven, and manifest, that's what we want here on the earth. Whatever peace looks like in heaven. I mean, could you imagine? I mean, talk about true peace, like the fullness of God's shalom, peace. That's what we want here on the earth, that kind of peace. And that's what we pray for. So now, how do we bring that love and joy and peace from heaven to a classroom at Monroe School? What kind of divine love and joy and peace what would that look like in the second grade classroom at Monroe School? Because that's what we want. And how's that going to happen? It will happen because somebody's on God's team. They're on Team Jesus. They're ambassadors of Jesus who were committed to the vision of Jesus for the earth because they were on Team Jesus before they were ever on Team South Bend. And it's because they're on Team Jesus that makes them all the more valuable to Team South Bend. Because Paul reminds us in Colossians 3, verse 23 and 24, whatever you do, 
work at it with all of your heart, as if you're really working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. And this will then matter in regards to how you view everything, even that kid that you kind of want to strangle in the moment. You'll have to think about justice differently, poverty differently, systemic issues that are fighting against love, joy, and peace in your students. It will dictate your responses, your thoughts, even your stamina. It will call for courage and boldness to speak truth and love for the sake of those kids, to give those children a future orientation and to call out in them the very best of themselves. And it might be to engage, even if nobody knows it because they can't see it, to engage in spiritual warfare through prayer against demonic powers and principalities that would seek to steal from those children the life God would have for them. For some of you in the room, you're a nurse or you work in the medical field. In that context, you pray that what it looks like in heaven will come to pass in your workspace. And as a nurse or as somebody in the medical field, you will fight against pain and against suffering and in death in the name of Jesus. And if you're in law enforcement, you'll need to creatively imagine what the kingdom looks like to execute your duties in a manner that reflects the presence of God. Or maybe you're in retail and you work a cash register at a grocery store. Listen, you're not just a cashier. You are an ambassador of Jesus who is scanning groceries with a prayerful eye open to how you might be able to bless, encourage, love, and heal everyone who comes through your line. You're not just a cashier scanning groceries at Meyer. You are on Team Jesus, and you are bringing the kingdom of God wherever you go. You're on Team Jesus. You said yes to his invitation. And I want to remind you, you have been chosen. So as I close, I want to encourage you just to begin praying and asking God this question. All right, God, I'm on your team. You invited me. You initiated it. I'm, I say yes to this invitation. I'm on your team. Where do you, where do you want me? What, what role do you want me to have? What, what part do you want me to play? What chair do you want me to sit in? Begin there, because when, when you don't ask the question, what do I want, what do I prefer, what do I need, but begin with, God, where do you want me? That's the right place to start. We'll, we'll talk more about this next week. But where do you want me, God, for your glory? Let me close by reminding you what Paul said in Philippians 2, verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Who really was being in very nature God. He didn't even consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. So rather... He made himself nothing, even taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. Amen? Let's pray together. God, we give you thanks that you have called us. You have chosen us. Before we even realized that you were offering an invitation through your son Jesus to be on your team, and so we say yes to that invitation. And as we say yes, now we're on your team and we're grateful you have not required from us some performance to jump through any hoops that you have just extended to us because you love us, but we're here and now we're asking you to use us for your glory. And so I pray, Lord, that right now by your spirit you'd be giving us what it is that we need to know what part we play, what role we play, what chair we sit in, that your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, might be lifted up. So Lord, we just pray that you'd help us in this venture, that your kingdom is here and we pray with him. May your kingdom come. May your will be done here in our lives, in our homes, in our workspaces, in our neighborhoods, 
just like it is in heaven. Use us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.